On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today, we have Kimberly McCrate. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Reconstructing Amelia, which was nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Alex Awards, Where They Found Her, and A Good Marriage. She attended Vassar College and graduated cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much for joining us again to talk about friends like these. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm very excited. We're going to go a little deeper. We've given you a lot of our basic questions, so we had to come up with some new ones. I hope you're not too scared. I'm a little scared, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying to try to come up to the varsity level. If you're going to bring me to a varsity level, oh, to show, yes, you will. I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to deliver as best. We I can. know it. We know. I have will. a feeling you'll be just fine. <laughs> So we'll start off easy, though. Tell us about Friends Like These. Yeah, so Friends Like These is another character-driven mystery. It's about a group of very tight college friends, now in their early 30s, who reunite at a lavish upstate New York weekend home to stage an intervention for one in their group. It's an intervention that quickly goes terribly wrong. When the book opens, a car has been found deep in the woods and one of the friends is dead inside and another one is missing. And when local detective Julius Scott arrives to investigate, it's clear the rest of the friends are hiding something. And so the question becomes, did some conflict between the locals and this small upstate rural towns had some conflict between them and the friends who were kind of this group of city hipsters did something between them escalate into violence or did some secret long buried secret among the friends resurface this time with deadly consequences. I like how you're saying secret and long buried secret. I mean, there is, but there are many secrets. (laughs) There's not just one. We love secrets. Yeah, no, it's a book with a lot of secrets. There are um, six or seven point of view characters, and I would say that they all have their own secrets, and many of them intersect in unexpected ways. Which we love. I was just going to say, that's Mm -hmm. what we would call complicated. (laughs) It's our tagline. Um, So I want to start really with the friendship. The book's dedication reads, for the friends who saved me long ago for the ones who still do. And I was really drawn in by the way, you know, you explore the complexities of friendship. I think college friendships, at least for me, are particularly interesting because, you know, you meet at such a pivotal time in your life and these bonds are so strong and long lasting. But in the prologue, you set up the question of whether that unconditional love can also have a dark side. So I just wanted to read right from the first page. You say, too much loyalty, that's the real problem. Best friends are supposed to stand by you, no matter what mistakes you make or how deep your flaws. They disregard your occasionally disagreeable nature and off-putting eccentricities. They accept the whole of you. That's the beauty of real friendship. 
but close friends can also let you get away with too much. And what feels like total acceptance, what masquerades as unconditional love, can turn toxic. Especially if what your friend really wants is a partner in crime, someone to excuse their own bad behavior. Because letting you be your worst self just so you can be terrible together is cruelty, not kindness. And it's got nothing to do with love. Just Oof. love that right yeah, out of the so gate. Good. So, you know, friends like these is the title. I mean, clearly, like I said, I think it's so interesting, the bonds that bring them together. And as you say, that is amazing part of friendships, the unconditional love part. But again, right out of the gate, you're talking about the dark side of that. So I wanted to see, you know, why you wanted to explore both the good and the bad parts of friendships like this. It was fun to hear you read that. I love yeah. hearing other people read my uh, read my stuff. That's always so fun. That was nice. So, I mean, that's definitely what I was most interested in when I conceived of the book. Like the characters and friends like these, I went to Vassar College and the group of friends I made there, for me, were just pivotal in my life. I didn't, I feel like some people have that really tight group in high school. I didn't have that. I had like one best friend, but I didn't really have a group. And when I got to college, for me, it was just this incredibly formative time and I didn't really have a family. And so when I went to college, those friends really became my family. And to be honest, they still are my family, those friends all these years later. And I've added some over the years, of course, but um, that core, uh, I really feel like to some extent, they're the people who made me. And there's something really extraordinary about that. But it is complicated. And I can remember one of the things that drew us all together was that we all had our own complications in our families, right? So and I think this is true for a lot of people when they go to college, that they're really finding themselves and exploring who they are and, and a myriad of different ways and oftentimes breaking away from maybe the family they came from or the place they came from. And so that was definitely true for me. And we all connected to some extent over the ways we struggled with our own families. And then I remember when I, um, years later, when we graduated and we got married and I was the first person to get married and those kind of troubles in my family were reflected in that experience of getting married, meaning like yeah, who was sure. there, who wasn't yep. there, mm -hmm. like the role my friends played in my wedding, which was significant. You know, like they were like, I picked out my wedding dress with my best friend and, you know, like a lot, they were really important. Then I went to their weddings and I was like, oh, wait, your family's like really here. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a bad way at all. It was wonderful. And I love all of their families and it's great. But it was instructive to the extent that there are limitations about what you know about each other, right? Because you meet and it's a bit of a blank slate. Um, yeah. And so I think it's, that is an interesting thing. Like you, it isn't family, right? It's different, but particularly depending on when you meet these friends, right? There's a whole life you've had probably right. separate from these yes. friends before you got there. And you're hearing about that life through the lens of your friend, but that doesn't mean that you're hearing necessarily the full picture or the whole story. Um, I was a psychology undergrad at Vassar, or mm. I was a double major, Asian studies and psychology, but so I spent half my time studying psychology and I found the group dynamics to be fascinating. You know, there's so much research about the things people will do in a group, about group think and about all of those things. And I think that's especially powerful among a group of friends because you are torn by wanting to be there genuinely for your friends. And I, and I think, I hope that the book really looks at 
but the extent to which that is often motivated by love. It's not just this this thing of, you know, oh, people are evil and bad and whatever, but it's complicated because you're like, oh, I completely accept you and I love you. And the thing you just did was actually like really bad. Right. <laughs> so yeah. when, 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 at what point am I going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm always there for you, except when you do that thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and right. so I think in the way I tried to do in a good marriage, there's a lot of platitudes about friendship, right? Like they're yes. always going to be there for you. Who's going to help you? You know, I'll leave out, do X or Y. Right. Um, but are you really going to be there and do that for your friend? And so that all sounds fine and well. And that sounds like a great attribute to be that loyal. But then, of course, there should be a limit, right? right? So where is that limit? I think it's an interesting, complicated question to look at. I don't think there are any obvious answers because these are with relationships, sure. they're always complicated questions. And outside of the context of an amazing kind of crime fiction, psychological thriller book, our real lives, like those lines get even grayer because, you know, what are you willing to do and what are you not willing to do for your friends? And sometimes you could think, I'll make this easy line in the sand, but but it's in real life, it really never is that easy, neither in the book as well. One thing you said that really struck me was when you go to college, you're like a blank slate, a clean slate, and you want to kind of rake away the stuff that you don't want to bring with you. But at the same time, you're always, or this is my experience, you're also finding people who have maybe similar traumas or similar dysfunction or similar, whatever kind of words you want to use. I think at 18, you don't always know what those are, but you find them. Those people always seem to find each other. And so you like that you see it in them. Like this is someone who gets it, who's not going to judge it, but also we're all kind of reinventing ourselves. It's a very weird and interesting dynamic that I find fascinating. And like you, I don't really have a lot of friends from high school. I have one good friend who lives now in Portland, Oregon, so I don't see her as much as I'd like to, but my people are are from college. And so a lot of this resonated with me on on every level, as always with you. Yeah. And I think that that question about that you're drawn to people with the same kind of trauma or dysfunction, like, right, like, that's great. You're like, let me find somebody who's broken in the same way I am. And then you're like, wait, we're all so broken, (laughs) like, in a like, like, just a myriad of ways. And so like, of course, that's really comforting. But that is actually potentially complicated, because you're fitting together in these ways that can be just challenging. Yes. Yeah. Or potentially enabling, like you Mm -hmm. referenced in that part I read, you maybe you just wanted a partner in crime, you know, a person to do the things with you. And Corinne and I met in college, so we did not... So we didn't go for the partner in crimes. So I, no. I, don't, I don't think that's what we were looking for. No, but the, no. So the, but, the bonds run deep. But Kate was also too healthy for me. So she, we we became friend, yeah. really good friends later in life when I had my shit together a little bit more. It wasn't damaged enough then. Yes. I just needed to catch up. Thank you very much. Right, and we're on opposite see, trajectories. Right it, happen, right, it can happen at any time. Right, like you can sense it's coming too. Like you can get somebody early in the process. Oh, sure. that's yeah. too funny. Yes. Yeah. Well, so as you've already mentioned, you have quite a few point of view characters in here. Many of them qualify for what we like to talk about: complicated women, Maeve, Stephanie, Alice, the detective, Julia. And I was just wanted to ask you a not a deep question, but a logistical question: Who came to you first, and how did you build out this web of friends? It's a lot of moving parts. And as we all know, this might be your best friend, but then you have a different relationship with so-and-so and and then they have a different relationship with each other. So how did you develop that? The answer, because I don't outline, as you guys know, because we talked last time, I don't outline my books in advance. So the answer to every question like that is always like piecemeal, you know, a little bit at a time. I think because I see things visually, Maeve, 
came first. I know in the, the book now, Julia opens the book, but Maeve opened it originally. Julia, the detective, was actually quite late. That was when I was... The, the friends came first, for yes. sure. So the, the book right. really, I mean, it does have... The, each of the friends narrates part of it, and then Julia Scott, but it really has kind of two narrators, the friends, and then Julia Scott. And so as much as it, it can sound like a lot of points of view, because it has you You're know, right. five friends and Julia... The friends, because the way they narrate it, they hand it off like the baton to each mm-hmm. one of them. That that timeline is always kind of moving forward in a linear fashion. And so they came first. I think Maeve came first because I saw her first in the car driving up. But Julia's entire storyline was later. So I really had all of the friends uh, worked out and, and had been writing that through line straight through. And then Julia, I mean, it's funny because she's obviously such a huge part of the book now, was a later addition. Well, that makes sense that you were figuring out what happens first and that's most of the friends and then Julia comes in to figure out what happened and then at that time when she comes in the friends come in to foil her right and to hide what happened and and to conceal a little bit of what happened out of protecting their friends oh you don't need to know that detail yeah no exactly exactly so it it did as I was writing it it did make sense and it did make sense at the point I conceived of her and then I was like you know needing again I to be careful not to give away spoilers as I was trying to understand the role she played that kind of unfolded for me as a bit more slowly and so in addition to having multiple points of view the book also moves around in time a lot very seamlessly which you make look easy but we know from experience is not that easy I know you don't out Line, like you've said, but I mean, tell us a little bit just about, again, with with all of these different perspectives and time shifts, how you keep things straight. I mean, even without outlining, is there like a calendar or a timeline? Like how, I, there's just in Post- terms you're of like, your You're process. like, even though you don't outline, you must actually yeah. outline. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm going, right, because yeah, like, there is an outline, right? <laughs> <laughs> Show us the how outline. <laughs> how do you keep track? How about that? How do you keep track? Yeah. You know, the answer is I don't meaning the way you're reading it now is with the rough edges smoothed smoothed off, right? Like Mm -hmm, to me, mm -hmm. like, so what if I have the sun rising and the sunset, you know, like it just, it's like, oh, this is like two days later and yeah, it's supposed to be a day later. Like for me, that's stuff to fix later, like in revision, that's not a first draft problem. Like I just, Mm -hmm. they feel big to a reader who's not a writer and would come and read the book. That would be very confusing. But if you think about it, those are single line, you know, that's very small changes and very small fixes to get all those pieces in place. But those are really like right before I hand them into my editor kind of changes to nail those pieces. The parts that become, I really don't worry about any of that as I'm drafting first pass through ever. Like I really am just trying to learn the characters and to keep like the arcs that are more complicated to keep straight are the emotional arcs, right? Like, okay, so like Stephanie's one of the points of view characters. So when I'm in her point of view, in her chapters, I don't know how many she has, but she really has three or four that are from her point of view it's very easy. It's like acting. I feel like I'm her Mm. when I'm writing the chapters. And so even in a first draft, it's very easy to get right. It's more difficult when I'm writing Stephanie from Jonathan's point of view. Mm. So when I Mm. have her doing something and then I'm like, well, wait, who is she? But to some extent, that balance works because in that scene, it's Jonathan seeing her. Yes. Right. And so it's not really her. It's never going to be 100% what happened. I mean, that's why I like to write from multiple points of view because it shouldn't be absolutely perfect because everyone's got their own version of events a little bit. So I do start to take notes, but later. Like I I try not to do that in the first draft. Like I am a bit superstitious about first drafts. Like if I start to get into the details like that, it will hang me up and Mm. I will be like, wait, I can't 
possibly do this many characters. You know, like I'll just I'll get in my head about it right. um, instead of just like finish the draft. Once it's all there, then I can worry. You can always fix it, right? Like you can always smooth out the places that don't quite work. Then I do keep a note of the timeline, as you're suggesting, like this date, that date. Where, and you obviously inevitably find a million problems like wait, (laughs) this whole thing is happening over X amount of time. That doesn't make any sense. But that it's surprising how easy it is to fix that stuff. You know, it just that you can fix all that stuff in a day and a half. You know, you just go through and and tweak the time. And sometimes you have to make things happen differently or a different time in the book. But once it's all there, then it's like the story. Yeah, the story. And also you're not worried about at least I'm not worried about it disappearing. You know, like the it's so tenuous, the hold you have on at least the hold I have for everybody else. But um, the hold I have on it that I want to make sure that I get it it exists and it's yeah. there and that there is really this magic thing that happens for me because I don't outline where I just like the moment where you like sit up and you're like holy shit you know you realize that x or y I mean and that that's what I live for is right. that is that Those moment where moment, I yeah. yeah where I finally make the connection and I finally realize something um, yes. and how it how the pieces fit and waiting for that moment is scary because mm. you don't know hundred percent whether or not it's going you really don't oh, <laughs> um yeah. you know so for sure it's going to happen so when it happens so i i'm really just focusing on giving myself the intellectual space to let all of that stuff happen and i trust that i can fix everything else after it's not just you i'm uh, in a workshop right now and my workshop teacher just told us first drafts are like a high wire act you can't look down you cannot look down. And what you're describing, getting too caught up in that, is the looking down. You'll fall. It's not to get from point A to point B. That's that's all you have to do. There is a place fiction comes from that is many different parts of your brain, but there is this kind of lizard brain mm. thing that is really your subconscious. And like, yeah. it's miraculous. And I think if you interfere with that, then you got to put on all these other hats. You got to put on an editor's hat. You got to put on a reader's hat. You got to put on a, eventually someday a marketer's hat. Right. You know, all sorts of things. But you do not do that in the first draft. I do think you just interfere with the organic part of the process, which by the way, is the most fun you will ever have, I think, because you can just, if you don't look back, if you just pretend it's fantastic, you're like, this is great what I'm yeah. doing. <laughs> Yay. And yeah. then you have to eventually face what you actually did, which is not nearly as great usually as you thought it was. But, <laughs> um, but for that first draft, you can live in that fiction, as it were. Right. You're bringing us beautifully. And you may have already touched on a lot of points that you might have otherwise. But I do want to read from your newsletter, which I happen to love. If you are a fan or a writer or both like I am, you really have to subscribe to this newsletter. So in July's newsletter, you wrote something that has stayed with me pretty much every day of the summer. You said, in order to write a novel, you must fully accept living in the unknown. Because the reality is all art is uncertain from reception to creation. Even if you write with an outline, and I do not, All you know really is where you'd plan to take the story. You don't actually know if that's where it will go. All good, worthwhile creation is a dynamic thing. You have to give it space to breathe and be willing to let it change and change again until it reaches its its intended end. I know that sounds wildly unsettling and unpredictable and hence very uncomfortable. Thank you for reading my mind. Sometimes it is. Other times it's liberating though. Regardless, you are much better off accepting it. And believe me, if you can learn to live with it, control freak extraordinaire, if I can learn to live with it, control freak extraordinaire, you can. It gets easier too if you don't equate that uncertainty with incompetence. 
Oof. After a paragraph that had already blown me away, that last line really, really got me. And then you go on to say, we're often taught that mastery is knowing what we're doing all the time. But with writing, true mastery comes in the letting go. I mean, this is mm. amazing writing advice, but also life advice for everyone to take in. And you talked a lot about living in the uncertainty. What I kind of want to focus on is the fact that we all equate uncertainty with incompetence. Like to say, I don't know means you don't know. And that's unacceptable in some way, shape or form. And that mastery is knowing what we're doing all the time. And yet how many people make it out of college into their 30s, middle age and think, I thought I knew exactly what I was doing this whole time. And it has not gotten me where I wanted it to get me. And I just want to talk about that. I want to hear if you have anything else to say on that, because it really shook me (laughs) in a good way. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote that and um, I heard from a couple people that it was meaningful to them. I was really glad. I definitely wrote it. It's like a good reminder for myself. Yeah. Like I I have to, you have, first of all, that is not something you just sort of like, okay, I know that. It's like something you have to keep reminding yourself of. I mean, that's the whole idea of mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. It's a practice, right? It's not a moment in time. Yeah. I mean, I think what I've learned just in life and writing is again, like so much of it is like the lessons of life or our writing lessons and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, is that truly talented and confident people feel comfortable saying they don't know. Mm. <laughs> and you realize it's truly actually, it tends to be the more insecure people who don't refuse. actually have faith that refuse. Mm-hmm. Those, I mean, that's the whole idea of a, a dictator or something. Yeah. Absolute certainty, <laughs> yeah. right? right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's problematic. And we all don't know everything. I mean, that's absurd. So I think it's true in business. If you have a, like a dynamic, some kind of innovation, I think it's innovative thinking. I think it's theoretical thinking, philosophical thinking, it's creative thinking. I think you have to be willing to let go of certainty of of any kind and to listen to people. Mm. I think that's, again, that's note taking, that's listening to outside feedback, Mm. uh, being unafraid to shift and be like, all right, that's not working. I'll do something else. I mean, like, I think when you can let go of the need to be absolutely correct to prove that you were what? Better? (laughs) I don't know. Good? I'm not sure. Like, uh, if you can let go of that, I think you have a chance at greatness. Yeah. But the first step is to let go of holding so tight to those things. Yeah. And again, I think this is also advice that, again, applies more broadly to life in general. Um, but if you know me, if there's any friend of mine, one of those college friends is listening to this and like laughing hysterically. Right. I am. <laughs> They're going to be like, who the fuck is this on this yes. interview? This is not the person I know. Um, this is my Thank best you. self. Right. I yes. just want to say yes. this is my best self that showed okay. up to this interview. Um, so I just want to say that like I, to all my friends out there, this is me being my best self. I am an insane control freak. So that, like this yeah. is all aspirational. Right. Like I said, it's yes. what I strive for. I do think having been through the process of so many books and having so many books that didn't sell and, and then trying different genres and trying now you know, to work in a film space that I don't know as much about. I am completely comfortable with asking questions and not knowing. And, and it doesn't inter. It, the one true thing is it doesn't interfere with my confidence in myself at all. Right. I, I really doesn't. I can firmly believe in my own ability and my ability to get better. Mm. And I think that uh, that's, you know, a real truism for sure about any craft is if you can't admit that you're not perfect, how can you get any better? I mean, like they're, they're mm. the first step you need to do is, is recognize that people are going to have notes for you and the world is going to have feedback for you that is going to probably push you in a more interesting, innovative direction. And so you should listen to it. 
if you're open to it, right? Yeah. I mean, the reason it speaks to me, and I'm sure right. I can speak for Kate on this too, is we're the same way. And mm-hmm. that lesson, if it was easy, it wouldn't have struck me so, so strongly. And so like right in the target of what I needed to hear. But there's a lot of us out there. So I know I'm, I'm not pretending that I heard it and all of a sudden I'm going to change, but it is the practice, right? It yes. is. It is. It is three lawyers on the phone. Yeah. I don't know if they teach the control freakness um, one L year, but it seems to be a it's self-selecting. Common... Yes. It is self-selecting. It absolutely is self-selecting absolutely. for sure. But My I do think be, that being in law school teaches you that if you can argue one side of it, you can argue the other side of it, right? So yes. like it is kind right. of that kind of agile thinking. I do think that some of what they actually teach you in law school mm-hmm. is the ability to be like, now you're on this side, now you got to be on the other side, argue the other side. So like yes. to not be like intrinsically too tied to any one way of thinking. That is true and very generous. But the truth is they're teaching you that you must be right on the side that you're on and the other side (laughs) must be wrong. So you can flip flop who is right and who is wrong. But But there is one truth. In your seat, you're always right. Yes, Yes. that's true. That is the problem, isn't it? Mm. Oh, well, in your acknowledgments, you thank your family for allowing me the space to write this book in this insane lockdown world when space was precisely what none of us had to give. So was this written in those wild early months when you were all sort of locked in your apartment or whatever? And how did that go? Yeah, no, it was. So we locked in in March and A Good Marriage came out in May. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I had a start. I did have a start on that. I don't know that I would have been able to start any book in lockdown. Mm. Right. So there is a difference between having a beginning uh, and having, you know, being a few pages. in. so I think I sold it right before lockdown. So I think I had at least about 80 or 90 pages then. And I had an idea where I was going. But the bulk of this, uh, the book, the absolute lion's share of the book was all written during lockdown. So for the first in New York, that meant March through, I think, the end of June for three three months, you know, we couldn't leave the house. Like at the Brooklyn Writers Space, which is mm-hmm. where I work, which is, if you live in Brooklyn, you should sign up for the Brooklyn Writers Space. It's a great place. It was functioning as, as my office. So I wasn't able to go there for a number of months. And that was extraordinarily difficult. So I can't write, my kids are older, they're teenagers, but I can do it oddly in the Brooklyn Writers Space, the people around, because they're strangers. I right. know they're not going to They don't want anything from you. Right. And yeah. no one will even come. We, we bought a desk for the bedroom. So it was one of the early adaptations to lockdown having so that we have an open plan apartment but so I had a you know a door that closed but even knowing people were in the apartment I just couldn't so I would get up at 3 a.m and I worked 3 a.m to whenever so just knowing no one was like everyone was asleep that made it easier and then you know obviously I really got back to work once I got back to the Brooklyn writer space but the book was primarily written during the pandemic Wow. So you really had to adapt and change from your normal writing processes. And geez. Yeah, I did. Although, it, you know, back in the day, uh, in the many books I wrote before I sold my first book, that was what I did because I couldn't afford childcare. So I used to wake up and, and actually back way back when I was a lawyer and I had a full time job, I used to write between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. 
And so I have done it. Right. I I went back to your old ways. I was younger. I I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, holy shit. I used to do this for like years on end. I was definitely more tired this time for sure. I was just going to say this, like, then I get very fascinated by it. So do you not need a lot of sleep or did you you go to bed super early then? Extremely tired. Tired. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I really, no, I I need as much sleep as everyone everyone else. No. some people don't. I know no. some people who it's like they just have no problem with like no. five hours of sleep. No, I feel I feel no. like nauseous feel and I'm hallucinating oh. for most of it. Okay. Yeah, no, it's nauseous, bad. It's, yes. it's bad. Yeah, it feels like college when you pulled all the right. you know, where right. you're just like you're kind of just a little bit not really Off. all there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a dark time, but I, I yeah. made it through, and uh, I can really realize now I can only sometimes I have to do it again, like if I'm on a, a deadline and I need. Mm-hmm. If you need more hours and you have pages to finish, yes. you've got to kind of find the hours somewhere. That's the reality. And as great as it is to be able to manage your own time, there are other things about being deadline driven and you sometimes yeah. just don't sleep for a while. So yeah. I've learned kind of, I can do about three days in a row on like four hours of sleep, but then that's it. I yeah. can't. Okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That, that makes, makes sense. sense. And the yeah. adrenaline takes over when, especially when you're looking at a deadline or, or whatever. Right. But I want to talk about this in a big picture way. So in your newsletter, you talked about book eight is mm. in process. So I want to talk about the book you're conceiving, the book you're writing, the book you're revising, the book you're promoting. And sometimes I guess at least two of those are together. But how does that work for you? Especially now you're doing a book a year. It's a tight time frame. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much it's a book every 18 months, which is for me, weirdly a significant difference. Mm-hmm. Um, a book a year, which I did do once for the YA trilogy is just a kind of schedule. And, and a lot of people do it and they do it wonderfully. I just can't quite do it because of my process. It doesn't matter how many hours I work. Like I can't make the pieces come together that fast mm-hmm. um, in my head. So yeah. I don't know that that will ever work for me. But I do think one every 18 months working really hard works. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I work a lot of hours. I mean, I, I would say I average about 60 hours a week of real, real, real working time. That's not meetings where I'm surfing the web while other people are talking. Yeah. <laughs> not that anybody else with another kind of job does that, uh-huh. but it's really working, working time. So yeah, I think that that surprises some people. They think that you're a writer. You just, and, and by the way, some writers don't work those hours because they work faster than me or they just have a different life than me. But it actually works out. There tend to be natural breaks and things like for instance, so I finished my sample pages for my next book. And I was kind of in the midst of really putting the pieces together to get the sample pages together. And they're off at my agent right now. So that's on hold for a second, right? right? So so she, so I've got a minute where she looks at that. And so I'm talking to you today and I'm working on the adaptation of friends like these. So I'm I'm doing something else for that. So there are these pauses that to some extent are tied to the notes you're getting from other Mm -hmm. people. So you hand something off and then there's, you know, a natural break where you go and focus on something else. And you obviously have a launch where you have to be realistic about like how much writing I'm going to get done. So I'm always, I have a calendar, like a master work schedule I put out that goes out for like a year. And I just, I have to revise it. You know, like I'm like, okay, so, oh, like I actually did a random at the end of before I I came back, I was in California before I came back to the East Coast and I was like, oh, so I was supposed to be done this by now, which like that didn't happen. So I try again as part of that, just not freaking out about that. I do all these super controlling things, like have this calendar and I put it up and when I'm down to like a real tight deadline, it will have the pages a day I have to be getting to and that were the words I have to be getting to and I'm following it. Like religiously, I'm not leaving my chair until I do it. But on the broader work schedule, I think you have to really set 
set goals and be very clear about what they are, but willing to be like, okay, so that didn't work. <laughs> so I'm not going to have a nervous breakdown. I'm going to like right. readjust. There's probably another way to do it where, yeah, so I'm going to have to give up these six weekends, the whole weekend, meaning you work full time both days. And so I have to do that a lot. And the great gift of this kind of job is that you can do that, right? Like I don't have a, a boss who's, I can make it up a different way. And that's helpful, but it also means you end up giving up a lot of <laughs> that free time very quickly. Right. That's how I schedule the podcast with Kate. I need to have it down. Even if it's going to change, I need to have it down. And then I'm very willing to change if it doesn't work or it's not realistic, but I got to have it down. I have to have something. In I love a calendar. Yes. Don't, yeah, I yes. love a list. Well, I mean, again, this is three lawyers on the phone. Yes. So of course we are like, we love, <laughs> who doesn't love a calendar? I feel like you, if you have it on paper, it's like, okay, I can see it. It's going to be okay. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. I love it. Okay. So I want to go back to friends like these a little bit. And you touched on this earlier. But this group of friends has been invited to Jonathan's weekend house in Catterskill. But there's more to the story than that for each one of them. And again, I won't spoil anything, but you really peel back the layers of connection, not just with them and the secrets they're holding, but with this town and their connections. And you peel that back from the first chapter to the last. And the town itself is complicated. It has this duality that you had mentioned. I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that, where that came from, your inspiration, why you wanted to have that be a big part of this. Yeah. So the town is a fictional town. Mm -hmm. um, there's a place called Catterskill Falls, which is a, it's a waterfall in the Catskills that I have been to. And I just, the name Catterskill, like it's got kill in it was, I thought great. So I, I use it as the, but I said it and I said it in like a real location. It's as if you drive by the spot, but the town isn't in that spot that's near Hudson, New York. So it was the inspiration from the book came when I visited a, one of my Vassar friends who owns a weekend house at a, in a town in that general vicinity. Right. And she is an architect and the house is, uh, there's pictures of it on my Instagram. It, it's, her house is gorgeous and it is the house. I mean, it doesn't look exactly the same, but it's very similar. And so I spent the weekend up there, but many of the towns there, there is a lot of socioeconomic distress. And, you know, I think there are drugs the way there are drugs all over the country, but, you know, not to malign any area in particular. I think it's a, it's a rampant um, oh, yeah. problem that looks different outside of cities, right? It just presents in a different fashion because it just looks different. But I was struck when, when I was up there the weekend with her, she had a party and invited a bunch of people over. So there were all these people who also had weekend homes who came over who were all these kind of like glamorous magazine types from the city. And I just was really struck by the dichotomy between her and her friends. And I wouldn't say poverty necessarily, but again, like economic distress. And I thought, wow, this is like a tinderbox, isn't yeah. it? And obviously there's a lot of that in our country right now, right? Like the contrast between the haves and the haves nots and liberals and conservatives and, and what that means. And the book is about a lot more than that, obviously, and its core mm -hmm. is about friendship, but those broader dichotomies and conflicts and and potential for volatility there. It was such a vivid weekend. And mm. I thought I went on, I was like, oh my God, this is a buck. Like as mm. soon as I was up there and I, I looked around and so it always stuck with me, but that's just a piece of a book, right? That's mm -hmm. a setting. Yeah. And that's a, that's an idea. That's one theme that was years ago. Um, I have been up to her house recently. We took pictures of my book up there, but it stuck with me for a long time and figuring out how that theme and that idea fitted within a broader narrative and a mystery took a while. So for you guys, and I'm sure all the other writers out there, you kind of have an idea and it stays and then it has to percolate and then it locks in with something else. And then you think, oh, that's it. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah. that was how I finally ended up starting it. Yeah, it just adds a whole other level to what's going on there. And for the most part, people live side by side fine. But then something happens. You said it's like a tinderbox. That's what happens. It's once something catches a little spark, all of the history, all of the ugliness, all of the emotion can come out at that time. And all of a sudden, it's not fine. It's fine until it's not fine. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, even your setting is complicated. Yeah, I love that. See? Yeah. So, you know, we got to talk about astrology. Yes. So the first time we spoke, it was really early on in our complicated conversation series with authors. And we sort of sheepishly asked you about astrology, which is a side interest of ours, but you were so enthusiastic and we vowed together to normalize astrology, (laughs) uh, to go forth and normalize. And we feel as if we've, we've tried. We We have continued. Has it worked? Has it, has it, have you been making progress? Oh my gosh. (laughs) On here, it has worked beautifully. We have gotten some of our best and most interesting answers with this question. So I'm not going to say it works at the cocktail party all the time, but... Because <laughs> people, but, people like skitter, they yeah. skitter away yeah. when you... Yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe not there, but it has certainly worked here. So, you know, we know you're a Virgo with a Pisces rising. Do you know your moon? I actually think my moon is Pisces. Oh, and my rising that's what I was Taurus. thinking. My moon oh. is Pisces. Sorry, I misspoke. And my rising is Taurus. Yeah. That makes okay. even this more makes sense, sense, though. The moon sign being... Because the way you were right. talking about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, That you were complicated. That shows your contradictions right there. So I'm curious, since the last time we spoke, whether you've had any experiences that could only be explained maybe by the stars or the hands of the universe, or maybe just an example of how astrology has proven to be like a very real thing for you. Well, I mean, it, it, I'm trying to think about specific examples. I mean, it's such like an integral part of my life. Right. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, so, you mean like, like how all I the live, time? How I live every day? <laughs> yeah. Is that what you mean? Yes. Well, but I will. I don't. You have could to, share that. <laughs> this is a little farther afield because it's tarot cards. It's a little farther afield. No, but, that's but, so. It's in the in the yeah. realm. But I will I will share with you because it is it is very funny and telling how my Virgo and Pisces work together. So I was out in Los Angeles with all my close faster friends and we went together to Malibu like a fancy Malibu tarot card reader as only you do in, <laughs> in California in Malibu uh, literally it was like the fanciest tarot card reader I, I think on the planet it's and, like um, on the Pacific Ocean <laughs> <laughs> literally it was yeah. all of those things yes so I went and did not get a reading I was happy with it was mm-hmm. I, I was like very traumatized and unhappy with with the answers there were some actually really great positive things that said about actually about like my career but there were some other other things that said that I, I was not happy with. And so a friend was staying with me and I, I waited like four or five days and I was like, I, I think we should just go back and I should just get another one. And I shit you not, I did that and I turned to my friend <laughs> Again, one of my best friends, and I was like, so when I go in there, and it's the same woman, and she, I was like, how do I just not have crazy, like, written all over me? Like, how is this reading not going to be? And the best part was that it was a different woman. So I, but I, the whole time, I was like, how am I going to, I just, and that's when you know you just believe in it. I was like, right. I'm just going to walk in. If it's the same woman, and be like, I don't, I don't know. You right. I need something write. else. Exactly. Yes. I just do yeah. something else. But it was a different woman, and the second reading made complete complete sense. And it wasn't even that I was being told good or bad things. It was right. just one really didn't resonate. And then the second one did. Okay. So that tells you something. So I, I paid a lot of money and drove like a very long time in Los Angeles traffic to get two tarot card readings. Five I would do apart. that. <laughs> 
I would I would a hundred percent do that. And you you also though said on our last one that you used to read tarot cards. Like tarot is a yeah, thing for you. Yeah, yeah, for right? sure, for sure. I will take any guidance I I will I That's can how get. I feel. Thank you. That is how what, I who feel. doesn't want more yeah. guidance? Yes. You know, Apparently a lot of <laughs> people. Well, you guys are gonna keep work we'll keep working on the rest of the universe, okay? The three of us. We will. We, we are will. trying. I mean I've added a psychic to my repertoire in addition to my astrologer. So don't you worry. I have not tried the tarot card reader, but why I not? would drive there. Add it on. Um, you know, it's so funny. We had Ashley Audrain on and she had nothing to say about astrology, but she said she would tell us a story about seeing a psychic right before her book sold. And her psychic told her your book is going to sell in X number of countries. And the person mm-hmm. who will be instrumental in making this all happen will have this certain initial. And so I am like terrified. I'm like, I want to go to a psychic. But if they don't tell me like the person who's going to do it. You and can gonna just sell. go five days later again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I just I just solved your problem. Just go back. Not even kidding. That's exactly what I took away from it. (laughs) Just find another one. Exactly. This is why when Virgos and lawyers invest in astrology, this is what they do. They just are like, I don't like that. I'll just go again. That's amazing. The universe (laughs) has to tell me something different this time. Correct. Yes. Because she got that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, we are going to try out something a little new with you. I hope that's okay we are going to do a little speed round okay great and we're not looking i need to say this now that given this conversation i need to say we're not looking for the the best response the perfect response we're looking for your visceral response okay okay so try to let go i am scared okay yes now these are okay i feel these are easy okay what's your favorite part of writing being finished your least favorite part of writing the space between turning a first draft into a readable second draft. I love mm-hmm. how you've also taken that. I said this was a speed round. You're taking it so <laughs> seriously. So You're like, I gotta give a short like, answer. Is it one word or no? Okay, no, so I no, can no. talk more. All, yes. right, all right, all right. No, no, okay. no. But also, don't feel pressured too. But I'm okay. sure I am. Just, I am very yes. I feel like I'm on Jeopardy. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> different question from the first. What is your favorite part of being an author? Different from writing. Hanging out with readers, like yeah. hands down, like I doing book clubs and stuff like that. Like I am an introvert. And so the solitary part of writing in general does not bother me. And, and in fact, like I'm not really like in my seat for eight hours a day. I'm like somewhere else. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel lonely in any way. But the moment where I get to and again, the book clubs I, I use specifically because you're really interacting as opposed to like a reading or something where it's right. like a larger audience. But these are people, especially if they're in a book club, like they invest in the characters and they have like real opinions and well thought through questions and like the best is when like they kind of like forget I wrote it they're like no no like this other thing is true or (laughs) I feel this way and it's the I get to connect and we all share one thing in common at that moment my book Mm -hmm. and and that for me is like an extraordinary thing and to stand in their heads and watch what they did with my story like that connection is amazing that sounds okay so what is your least favorite part of being an author Oh, the uh, one-star Amazon reviews. No, I mean, like really, but being able to, not that literally, but I think the unpredictability and the way some people will respond. And there is a lot of vitriol out there. um, And they kind of forget that you're a person and that, again, you get things that go to not your work, but you, you know, that's a hard part of it. But as I think Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Big Magic, she's like, every job has a shit sandwich. And, you know, you just have 
have to decide which one you want to deal with. And that's it. And also the unpredictability. I mean, it, one of the great parts of being a lawyer is like you get a job as a lawyer and like that's your job. And yes, yeah. there will be ups and downs, but like it has a, a level, a degree of certainty. To you it. literally um, move up every year. You're a first year, you're a second year. Like what other right. job has that? And there's a track. You're on yeah, a partner a track, track yeah. right? And so... There is no track and, and you can have a book that you think is your best book and then, you know, no one likes that book and then, you know, it, whatever. There's just really a degree because art, mm. you know, as I said in that my newsletter, like there yeah. is no certainty, not yeah. in the creation and not in the reception and you yeah. can't right. control it. And right. so that is another why you have to just keep reminding yourself to let it go and like to focus on the creation part and not on anything else. Can I ask you a question that is going to have a little bit of a I know the answer is going to be yes, but I want the nuance behind it. Does it feel a little less uncertain from those days when you didn't even know if you would be published at all? Yes. I mean, there is a big difference between not getting over that transom. There's a, yeah. There is a big transom between unpublished and published. They're just That's just a reality because it's a foot in the door, right? But... Yeah. Inevitably, you know, you move the goalposts, right? Like, so, yes. you know, you get, and then you want whatever, like that, it's the nature of life. And I think too, if you're an ambitious person and you're a hard worker, and again, I think to kind of do this, you have to, because it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of hours and a lot of discipline. And I'll, so you probably have to have that in you somewhere that the, your expectations just sh- shift. And so yeah. there's no better moment than when you go from unpublished to published, right? So like in that moment right. where you just yes. sell that first book. You kind of will ne- before you know how that book will do, even. Right. Where yes. all possibilities yes. remain open to you. So for anybody out there who has just waiting, just keep at it until you sell that first book and then you can quit. Because that moment right. is like <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Doesn't than get that. any better than that. Because then yeah. you're on the other side of it. And then you're trying to build yeah. a career and then you're trying to do other things and it gets compl- right. more complicated. Right. Mm. All right, back to speed round. Couple more. What makes you happy? Mm. <laughs> Then there was, it's a tough there was one. deafening silence. So everyone realized <laughs> she's never this is happy. <laughs> I, I, oh I literally God. couldn't answer this, this question. What <laughs> makes me happy? Are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> I mean, it could be a cup of coffee or, you, you know, know what? It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like unending. Okay. And then fulfillment. Earth shattering yeah. happiness. Yeah. And you know what? I recently was in California and I went hiking alone in Joshua Tree in the desert. And that made me incredibly happy. Like, yes. you know, it'd be a, a at one. sunset and it was um, like hiking, summiting a mountain at, at sunset and coming back down filled me with joy. Love that. Excellent. What makes you rage? Oh, God. Um, How much time do we have? <laughs> right. yeah. I think we need to have me back a third time. You know, I think hypocrisy, mm. you know, hypocrisy, be people who are judgmental and or people who are hypocrites. That fills me with rage. Okay. What inspires you? People. <laughs> And so usually the smallest thing, I mean, I can go mm. on the subway and just watch people. And I think that living in the skin of somebody who is not me is endlessly inspiring. Recently was somewhere I was in a Staples parking lot and I watched these two people in my rear view mirror and they were neighbors. I heard this conversation where like, oh, they just saw each other young. And it was clearly like she was interested in him and, and he, it was the whole thing. And then he like dropped the things in his hands while he was talking to her. And it was oh like, I'm gosh. like, I'm going to stay here for nine hours and watch this conversation between the two of them and so stuff like that I think yeah. watching humans at their best and at their worst is endlessly inspiring I love that, that. is the writer's brain love right there that. totally all right so the last one is what gives you hope 
people. <laughs> I think the same thing. People. You know, I yes. think that people are capable of such endless generosity and such incredible acts of love. And there is obviously so much bad in the world, but I have hope for the goodness always, despite yeah. how dark my books are. I think in yeah. them is, is that. And I think love is incredibly hopeful. Oh, I love that. Okay. Our very last question is an easy one. Although Kate might not agree. Well, I have been watching The White Lotus and was completely obsessed. It doesn't qualify for coverage on this podcast, but I was totally hooked. And so we wanted to ask you, what are you reading or watching or loving that our listeners might be into? The White Lotus is on my list. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I just finished Normal People, the TV show. Um, oh, yeah. I oh, read it. Yeah. And, uh, it was so so good. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I just, I think about it all the time. Like, so, mm, so, mm, so good. I thought it was mm, fantastic. So I could, yeah, I could we talk, love that. Uh, for a long time about, it. I just think it was so subtle and captured these really complicated, subtle moments in love and in relationships. I just mm. think it did it better than I have almost ever seen done anywhere. Anyway, so that I actually, my next newsletter is coming out on Friday and I am talking about that in my my newsletter because I, I thought it was just so, so well done. Oh, we did recaps of that. So we have a lot of normal people content on here. And she's got another book coming and then another show coming too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Conversations with friends. Yeah. And I know I said that was the last question, but do you want to talk at all about your adaptation? Is that something you can talk about or? Yeah, so I can't talk about the details of it, but it has friends like these all my books have been optioned at some point. Reconstructing Amelia and A Good Marriage are both in active development at HBO and, and Amazon. Reconstructing Amelia is at HBO and uh, A Good Marriage is at Amazon. So both of those are in active development. And Friends Like These has been optioned by a well-known production company that hasn't been officially announced yet. Um, but so I am looking for that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm working on the adaptation for the first time. So that's a new process for me. So that's exciting. Um, but it's early days, you know, so they're, it's... It's not even, like I said, been announced yet, but it's very exciting to be a part of the process for sure. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for joining us again, for coming back to talk to us. As many books as you write, we will talk to you about <laughs> I, I adore talking to you guys you are right we're my um first interview uh for friends like these so oh, um a great oh, way to i was like oh this is such a good way to kick it off because i know that i'm gonna have a, a such a good time and i will contact you both offline to get the name of the psychic when i when i feel <laughs> oh. like i need to <laughs> when i feel like i need a, a, a like just to whatever a refresh yeah. for yes. my five tarot card readings <laughs> yeah oh, i can God. do that i can give you that don't you worry she's excellent excellent Good, good. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.